Well, many of you who know me know that I went to Davidson College, and at the same time that I was there, I could already see the KSU student smiling. Uh, there was a, a person there, um, Wardell Stephen Curry, um, and it's a good time to be a Steph Curry fan as he wins another championship. But one of the things that was a highlight for me at my time at Davidson was right when Steph's time was coming to a close. He had just had another incredible year, my junior year. The season was over, and I was out at Tomlinson basketball court, just a little outdoor basketball court behind the dorms. And there was a two-on-two game going on the other end. I was going to shoot around a little bit, and Steph came out. And we shot around on that end of the court. Pretty soon, I stopped shooting my basketball and just proceeded to give him his basketball back as it went through the net over and over again. Um, it was incredible. It was, uh, yeah, you can already see where I might be going with this passage, um, and it's, it's, not, it's not good. This is my idolatry. Um, but it was an incredible moment. I had a, a TA session right after that with some students for Spanish, and of course, we didn't talk at all about Spanish. It was a really good TA, too. Um, and I was like, man, I just, like, shot hoops with Steph. And they're like, did you talk to him about whether he's staying, right? Everyone knew, like, is he going to go to the NBA? And we proceeded to just kind of fantasize about how incredible it would be for Steph Curry to come back and, like, how incredible our senior year would be or my senior year would be and the things he would do, the, the, the new heights he would reach. And then finally, one of the guys in our group just kind of, like, laughed at us all. And he was actually the best basketball player among us, too. It was, was kind of funny. He's like, guys, he is leaving Davidson College. <laughs> it would be stupid for him to come back. Like, he's going to go do so much more than just play in the NCAA tournament, you know? Like, <laughs> and he was right. Uh, and we just had this little vision of what we wanted for our little kingdom of Davidson, the little glory that we just wanted to go a little bit longer, um, that kind of missed the point of just how incredible he was. And I bring that up because Peter and James and John continue what has already been happening among the disciples and the fact that they don't understand why Jesus is there. One of the things that Mark's gospel seems to point out more than some of the others at points is how much the disciples don't understand. Um, some of the other accounts of transfiguration have less of a focus on the disciples' reaction to Jesus than this one does. And Mark seems to be pointing out over, over and over again how they react and the conversation they have after the transfiguration. You know, what does he mean that he has to raise from the dead? They have this vision of the Messiah that serves their little kingdom and their little purposes. And I think part of why Jesus takes them up on the mountain is because part of the problem with their little view of the Messiah that fits into this neat little box that's probably mostly political, that's probably mostly something that's going to happen right away, is because it, it puts Jesus in a little box. It fails to see the glory and the beauty and the power and the breadth of who Jesus is. His kingdom is so much more than what they have been anticipating. His glory is so much more than the glory they think Israel is going to be restored to at that moment. And yet right beside that glory that they fail to understand and miss is the failure to see where that glory is aimed. That all of that power and might and beauty is actually aimed downward. And that's something they don't have a category for. That's something they can't quite understand. If you go a little bit earlier um, in Mark's gospel, there's this, maybe you've come across in your reading and been like, this is kind of confusing and hard to understand, like this partial healing of a blind man. Um, and, and you're like, well, Jesus doesn't seem to struggle with these healings at other points, but, but part of what seems to be happening in that partial healing of the blind man is right before Peter's confession and their failure to understand who Jesus is, it seems to be a, almost a metaphor of their only partially seeing Jesus. 
Um, that, that even as they are starting to see that Jesus is something special, that Jesus is something wonderful, unless they fully see Jesus as the suffering servant, as the one who came to die, it won't do them any good. And so what I hope we'll see together this morning as we look at the transfiguration together is that we will see the need to behold Jesus in all of his glory as that glory is aimed downward and that we'll only receive the invitation to come and pick up our cross and follow Jesus in the path of suffering as we behold that glory and as we understand where that glory of Jesus is headed. And so I want us to begin looking at the need, the need for the glory of Jesus the need for the glory of Jesus. As we look at this passage together in verse one, it's clear that Jesus has just made a prophecy and immediately, you know, this doesn't always happen in the Bible, but immediately this prophecy is fulfilled. Uh, that some of the disciples are gonna get to see Jesus in this brief moment where heaven seems to break through. Um, it's a little bit strange because most of the rest of the gospels, right? We don't, we don't have a moment like this, all of a sudden Jesus is revealed in all of his glory and power. And if we're honest, it can kind of strike us as a little bit strange even. Like they're going along, they're, they're healing people, they're teaching things, and all of a sudden dead people are showing up and Jesus is shining bright. Uh, his robes are so, so bright, right, like in a way that no one could bleach them white. It's clear that Mark intends for us to see the full glory of Jesus. And, and part of what's happening in this passage is definitely a... a homage or reference to the, the previous moments in the Bible where God has revealed his glory to his people. Um, as they go up on a high mountain in verse 2, that, that, that this happens exactly six days after. There's many things that would probably make a lot of the original Jewish audience think of, of Sinai and Moses' experience on Sinai, witnessing the glory of God. Um, there's also the reference here to Elijah, and he himself also had an experience um, at Horeb, at, of the glory of God, although be it in a slightly different way than what Moses had. Part of what is happening here in this moment is Jesus is being revealed in all of his power and goodness. He's being revealed as one who is a fulfillment of so much of what the Old Testament longed for. Uh, he is appearing as Psalm 104's praises of Yahweh robed in light. Here is Jesus almost as one robed in light. As Daniel longs for an ancient of days that would also shine bright, you can see how Jesus is the fulfillment of that hope. Um, certainly, even the appearance of Moses and Elijah seems to point to some of the most sought after or, or, or prophecies of longing of the Old Testament. Um, in Deuteron Deuteronomy 18, there's the, the prediction from Moses himself that there will be a prophet like him. And yet, if we look at the Old Testament, it's clear that, that, that no one really had the same power in revelation that, that Moses had. It was, it was a longing that was still yet to be fulfilled. And here is Moses speaking with Jesus. Elijah is the prophet who was said to come before the day of the Lord in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Here he is with Jesus having a conversation, but notice that they are there briefly, and then they're gone. Their glory as prophets, as, as people, as these pivotal figures of the Old Testament, and I point all of that out just to say that it's even more startling when you juxtapose that with the disciples' failure to see the glory of Jesus. Right? All of these things are happening. It's the fulfillment of Scripture. It's, it's many echoes of Old Testament prophecies. And the disciples are confused, right? Verse 10, they have this discussion about suffering. It's clear they don't quite get it. Uh, and I just, 
I love, I love verse 6. This, this is one of my new favorite verses in the Bible. Um, because I would have tried to spiritualize, you know, the, the tents and the tabernacle. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, Jesus is so good that we're here. Let's have a tent for each of you. And then Mark's editorial comment, for he did not know what to say. They were terrified, right? Like, they are not having this super spiritual, like, this is, yeah, if we just have these three tents, like, everything's going to happen. Um, they're terrified, and they're not quite sure what to say. Um, perhaps, yeah, they're like, wow, this is it. This is the, the Messiah coming in all of his glory. We need a tabernacle. Uh, maybe they're like, we could, maybe we can make this last longer if we just have a camp out. It, it doesn't matter. Mark's like, they are just scared out of their minds, and they're not sure what they're saying, right? They don't quite understand. I think even the way Peter responds to Jesus, it's, it's not disrespectful to say rabbi or master. But in this moment, Jesus is being revealed as the son of God. And the voice from heaven confirms that. And Jesus is being revealed as the ancient of days. He is being revealed as only Yahweh could be revealed. And even Peter's kind of reference to him simply as master falls short of even God's own words a few verses later about who this is, his beloved son. And I think part of what's happening here, once again, is that the disciples are too quick to think of their own kind of earthly definition of the Messiah. They're trying to put the pieces together in a way that makes sense to them, and they haven't taken the time to fully behold the glory and beauty of Jesus or the purpose of that Messiah, to understand it as God's word would have them understand it. Um, some of you might be fans of The Office, but one of the things that happens in one of the Christmas episodes is Dwight is a secret Santa who's sending him little pieces of something, and in a very Dwight Schrute way, he assumes it's some sort of weapon, right? <laughs> He's just like, yeah, of course, this is a weapon. Um, and it's not until he realizes, right, he gets the, I can't remember what type of nuts it is, but he gets the nuts, right? It's that he realizes the purpose and the pieces can fit together and he can actually use it. And in a sense, Jesus is wrestling with his disciples to say, you're putting the pieces together wrong. One of the pieces you need to see is my glory. Another teacher cannot save you. I'm not here just to give you some better principles for right living so you can go off and try again. This is God himself among you. And no one less than the God-man can pay the penalty for our sin. Only God can bear this. And part of the beauty of the transfiguration is that part of what needs to happen in the disciples' hearts, and I find this needing to happen in my heart, is that the glory of Jesus needs to break apart their little idols and their plans. Right? The glory of Jesus is too big for them to think that it all is just going to fall out as they think things should fall out. That if we aren't consumed by the glory of Jesus, we will easily twist the idea of Jesus, the idea of a Savior, into something more comfortable, more like us, easier to handle, not as offensive, not wanting so much of our time. Right? But if we begin with the glory of Jesus, if he really is who he says he is, and, and more importantly, who his Father in heaven says he is in this passage, it's, it's much more difficult for us to turn him into just another idol. Um, if we claim to follow Jesus while using his name to justify our desires, our particular political beliefs, our particular moral stances, our particular views about how our neighbors should take care of their yard, um, he will be a far smaller, weaker, tamer savior than the one who confronts us in scripture. And the transfiguration is a moment where heaven breaks through to help us see that. 
you could argue, I think rightly, that verse seven in many ways is the high point where God's words break through. But it's interesting, it's, it's the words that come at Jesus' baptism, but here it seems like they're more spoken to the disciples, right? Um, a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now the, the reality of who Jesus is is being applied to the disciples as they have their many beliefs about how things should look and how things should go, the heavenly father breaks in and says, listen to him. His word above others. His word is, is what you must cling to. His word is going to help you see the real purpose of his coming because he's already given it to him, right? He's already told them just before this, after Peter's confession, about what it really means to be the Christ. And yet they're failing to really listen to him and apply that and understand it. Um, if Jesus isn't glorious, if Jesus isn't worth following, if he isn't beautiful and powerful as he's portrayed to us here, why would you bother with this word? Um, it is difficult. Even as Jesus has just done with his disciples, it calls us to great sacrifices. It's, it's not meaningful for us unless Jesus is who he says he is, unless he is the Savior in all of his splendor and glory come to die. And part of the irony, the sadness of what happens in this passage is the disciples, in their confusion, in their terror, kind of miss the point a little bit, don't they? Even in the, the, the irony of suggesting the tabernacle or the tents, here is God in the flesh to be with his people. And they're kind of still thinking in the old rubric of a tabernacle, perhaps, a place where God's glory can come and they can be close to it. Uh, perhaps if you're really holy, you can go into it. And yet here is God himself in the flesh, the true temple of God with them. Jesus in all of his glory hasn't come to just be separate from them, to remind them that they are far, far away and not able to be with the holy God, but he's come to show them the way that a holy God can be with them. Um, it's one of the things that I feel like I've, I've said a lot and I've probably heard from a, a bunch of different pastors over the years, but that, that one of God's favorite prepositions in the Bible is just with. His desire is to be with his people. And one of the questions from the very beginning after the sin in the garden is, well, how can God be with when we're so separated? When sin is rebellion, as, as the Bible would portray it. And here is Jesus to be with his people. And yet, part of the reason they can't embrace it isn't just because they're missing the glory of Jesus, and we miss the glory of Jesus, but they also are missing the trajectory of that glory. And that's the second thing I want us to see in this passage that the glory of Jesus is aimed downward, and that is the glory that leads us on the path to suffering. Jesus has just taught his disciples about the need to suffer, and you might look at the transfiguration on the first pass and say, well, there's not much here about suffering, but notice that as soon as Jesus has had this encounter with the disciples, he warns them not to tell anyone. Uh, it's another example that's, that's frequent in Mark's gospel of Jesus controlling the narrative, of Jesus knowing when it was his time to go and die. But he, he tells them not to say what they've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. As soon as they're, they're not even fully off the mountain, right? As they're making their way down, Jesus brings it back to death and resurrection. He brings it back to suffering. And you can imagine how for the disciples, 
it probably would have been really startling to see what they just saw and be confused and terrified and think, you know, who knows what they thought at that moment, right? This is, this is crazy. Jesus is more than we thought he was. And yet he's still talking about dying, right? To raise from the dead, so that, that would mean he has to die. And, you, and once again, Mark is really helpful. He, he, sh- he, he sheds a light, uh, lets us peek through a window at kind of what they're going through. They're questioning this. Uh, all right, you told us not to tell anybody, we won't tell anybody, but we're going to try and figure this out. And then in verse 11, they ask this question of Jesus. Um, and it's, it's really revealing. Um, I was encouraged to see other commentators kind of take it this way, because at first I was like, is it, are, are they kind of bucking up against Jesus? Like, are they, they're, they're kind of pushing back against Jesus here. Um, it's through questions. It's a little bit subtle, right? But it seems like it was a common belief that, that Elijah would come back based, like when we said earlier, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And yet the vision and the interpretation that was common in Jesus' day, that, that things would be restored in this really glorious, wonderful way. And so uh, part of the reason they're probably asking Jesus this is he keeps, he keeps referencing this, uh, this suffering and dying stuff. But if Elijah brings back the renewal of all things, then things should be pretty great. So... Jesus, why does it say that Elijah must come first, right? Like, you're kind of wrong, Jesus. Um, don't you know about this, this, this scripture? And I just, I love his response to them. He's like, yes, you are right a little bit. Uh, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But what about these, these other prophecies related to that same coming? How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Um, and there's, there's many things that Jesus could be referencing in this passage about suffering and dying. There's, there's prophecies, obviously Isaiah's suffering servant, that son of man. There's Zechariah's prophecy of the Lord's shepherd himself having the sword turned against him and the sheep scattering that Jesus will later reference. There's the prophecy of the Lord's anointed in Daniel that would be cut off. I think part of the reason Jesus kind of has a vague reference to a, a suffering prophecy in scripture is because he recognizes it's all over the place. At the very same time that there's this beautiful hope in the Old Testament that God would come and restore all things and make all things new is this reality that there's a prophecy of suffering. And oftentimes that suffering surrounds the Messiah himself or surrounds a promised one, surrounds one connected with the ushering in of God's kingdom. And then Jesus kind of goes, what's more, right? In addition to all of those prophecies, uh, I've already kind of told you, Elijah has come, right? Some of the other gospels spend more time pointing this out, right? That John the Baptist, if you'll receive it, is Elijah, is what Jesus says to his disciples. And they did whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus says, look, this is actually a part of the kingdom. It's not just the son of man that suffered, but even Elijah. What did they do to him? The kingdom of God has always been a kingdom that advances through suffering, that doesn't often seek power as the world defines it. Instead, there's this hope of a suffering savior who could actually take on the sins of the people. And so the second thing that we, we need to see is that, glory, that the glory of Jesus and all of its beauty and goodness is not aimed at exalting himself, but instead at humbling himself. And that's another huge part of the gospel. 
um, that, that the path forward in Jesus is not one of exalting ourselves, of lifting ourselves up, but it's one of humiliation before exaltation. It's a path that leads downward. Um, actually, it was when Cameron was, I think, visiting us. At some point, uh, probably a month or two ago, we were, we were having a discussion about the health and wealth gospel. And I do think there's a lot of ways in which verses about blessing can be abused and twisted. Uh, but I think Cameron made the really good point that a lot of times even more important than trying to kind of have that exegetical battle is, is asking the question, do you have a theology of suffering? Do you have a, a belief about suffering that the Bible has, that this really is the path of our Savior, and that this is the path of his people, and that the glory of Jesus is actually going to advance and be revealed as his people follow him in suffering? That if, if this is the way that Jesus serves and glorifies his Father, the call to pick up a cross and follow him is, is the call to see that this is the work of the kingdom. And that if that's true then, then it means following Jesus oftentimes is, is going to feel hard or even contrary to who I am. It's going to feel like something that isn't natural to me as a sinner. It's not just going to be something that, that I, I walk through happily. I love... One commentator said that um, the way through the wilderness has not been terminated by the disclosure of Jesus' unique glory. I mean, the truth is, is, a lot of times I want to say, well, Jesus went through the wilderness, so I wouldn't have to. Right? He suffered. He, he took care of the hard stuff so that things could be easier. And even if that's not what we would say with our mouths, I find myself living that way. When I start to get frustrated that something didn't work out the way I wanted it to, and I start to check off in my mind, well, did I do everything the right way? Am I still believing the right things? Didn't I pray about this? And I just very quickly forget that so much of what happens in Jesus' kingdom happens as we follow him in the path of suffering. Um, one of the things that I, I loved uh, about hearing one of my buddies preach recently, he he's, he's very intentional, very clear. I, I love the way he just spoke to the kids in the congregation and I want to try and do that this morning a little bit. If you're a kid in here this morning and you're, you're listening to this thing about the transfiguration and wondering what in the world does this have to do with me, in some ways, I hope you feel a little bit of affirmation as we say that the following Jesus is a path of suffering. Obeying your parents should be hard. If you're sitting there thinking, well, obey, my parents, you don't understand how stubborn they are. Um, part of the way that you're called to serve your parents and help them see Jesus is, is by trying to love and obey, and sometimes that might feel like suffering. It might feel like picking up your cross. For others of us here this morning in the church, I, mean, I, I definitely didn't, didn't plan this this way, expecting some of the decisions to come out that came out this week. Um, Jesus is here in this passage assuring the disciples that he is going to suffer for them. They don't understand why, even as they misunderstand him even as they kind of try and put their hand out and say, no, 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 Jesus, this isn't what Scripture is saying. Jesus is willingly going to the cross to suffer and die for those that misunderstand him, that will eventually flee from him, that will scatter when the sword falls on the shepherd. Jesus is going to suffer and die for one who will deny him, despite having seen Jesus in all of his glory on this mountain. The call to follow Jesus in suffering is also a call to love and serve people even as they are disgusted by us. 
even as they might say that our morality and beliefs are outdated or even hateful, and to not retaliate in kind, but to humble ourselves and serve. And at the moment we want to be like, no, well, easier said than done. We see Jesus patiently pursuing his people. And as we come to the end of this passage, that's the last thing I just want us to see as we conclude. Jesus doesn't come down, come down off this mountain and just kind of put his hands on his head and say, this is it, like I'm done. <laughs> These people just don't get it. I've said them, I mean, if you go back through, you could count probably at least five or six things in the last chapter about where he just keeps saying like, suffer and die, suffer and die. This is what the Messiah came to do. This is what you're being called to do. After I die, after the Son of Man has risen from the dead, he's saying it over and over again. They're still not getting it. And yet Jesus is still pursuing them. He's not giving up on them. He's still patiently explaining to them, no, no, this is actually what Scripture says about the Son of Man and his need to die. And even though you don't understand why it is he needs to die yet, I am going to go and fulfill that. And so I hope this morning you'll see that the beauty of it, right? Like Mark isn't afraid of casting the disciples in a bad light, but part of the beauty of Mark casting the disciples in a little bit of a bad light is the grace it offers to us. Um, Jesus didn't die for you and love you because you know more scripture than the next person, because you understand what he came to do better than the rest. He died for stubborn hearts and stubborn people. And in all of his glory and splendor, he took that to the cross for you. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, um, once again, we thank you for the chance to, to worship you this morning by turning attention to your word. Um, and Father, even as we're reminded of your faithfulness in pursuing us, pursuing your people even to death on a cross, even to mocking and shame, despite all of that glory, with all of that glory and power on the cross, Father, Would you help us has bought for us in the invitation to follow Jesus? Would you help us to see that you will be glorified and that your kingdom will advance even as it might be through avenues that many in the world would call weak or unglorious? Um, Father, we thank you for the pursuit of our Savior. Would you help us to deal with each other in tenderness to go out uh, and deal with one another and our neighbors um, as people who didn't deserve that glorious Savior and yet have received him and trust in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.